Hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm doing great. Just sitting here on a Sunday afternoon in a drizzly, cold, foggy, miserable East Coast day, but a perfect day for football and blue chew, so it's been a good day. Well, I like it. You're getting your day started right, and we hope you guys are as well. We're excited to be talking about what a great time it was in WCW back in October of 1997. Of course, we're, we're visiting Halloween Havoc 1997 today. And Eric, you, uh, you've enjoyed the aspect of this podcast where it sort of forces you to go back and take a look at old stuff, often for the very first time. Is this your first time watching Halloween Havoc 97 back again? It certainly is. Uh, it was a great pay-per-view. I can't wait to get into it. But yeah, it, uh, it was. And, you know, it was the second year, I think, that we were in uh, at the MGM Grand. And it was... Uh, a noticeably hotter crowd, I think. We were really building up the the local market as well as the the broader national market. So it turned out to be a great show. It did indeed. And uh, the undercard is very, very interesting. But before we talk about the match itself, we should mention that just a few weeks prior to this, we lost one of the all-time greats. Brian Pillman would pass away uh, at the beginning of the month, around October 5th. And you had known Brian for a long time and had worked with him very recently in WCW and this is really the first guy who passed away that had been active in all three promotions, WCW, the WWF and ECW. And unfortunately it's going to be the first of many that are going to continue for the next decade or so. Uh, what do you remember the reaction being when you got the news that, that Brian Pillman had passed away? I mean, my own personal reaction, I was, I, I was, you know, devastated might be too strong of a word. Brian and I weren't that close and I don't want to suggest that we were, but I was, I, I was really saddened by it. Obviously, um, Brian was someone who I, you know, I considered a friend, you know, regardless of, you know, the business issues that we may or may not have had from time to time. And, you know, you're always going to have those in business. You're always, especially in, in a, in, in an entertainment business where people are f- fighting for as much spotlight and leverage as they can possibly get. Um, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, but that it comes with the territory. But beyond those issues, Brian was just someone that I, I dug being around. Uh, he was a, a guy that I got to know a little bit in WCW prior to getting into management, spent a little bit of time with him on a European tour and had a, quite a bit of fun. <laughs> and, uh, and like, like I said, as I got into management, you know, Brian and I had a, a pretty good working relationship. So it was, it was, you know, it really saddened me in, in a big way. I know a lot of the, the guys that Brian worked with in the locker room is they were part of the WCW roster where some of them were devastated. A lot of them were very close to Brian and it was, I would say shocking, but not surprising is unfortunately probably the most accurate way to, to state most people's reactions. But regardless of what was going on in Brian's personal life, he was a, a very well liked individual. It's uh, it's a shame when you lose somebody like this, especially who was such a big part of professional wrestling and you obviously felt like you had to address it. So the October 27th observer would report that you had a meeting with all of the wrestlers on October 13th before nitro in Tampa and Meltzer would write, he talked about attending Brian Pillman's funeral. And then he said he wasn't naive enough to think there was no drug problem in WCW, but that he hasn't personally seen any examples of major abuse. He asked any wrestler that if they had a problem to go to him and the company would take care of the wrestler and treat the problem like it was an injury. 
and brought up that wrestlers that have been hurt on the job have been paid while injured. Why did you feel like you needed to make a statement? Was this a, an Eric Bischoff decision? Was it handed down from the North Tower? What do you remember about uh, your speech here? Uh, it was my decision, but fully supported by uh, corporate. There was nobody that didn't want to try to do the right thing. I think we were all well aware, and obviously, you know, we weren't clairvoyant enough to to know the the depth of the issue, uh, both in WCW and in WWF or E at the time, whatever it was, WWF, I guess, still. Uh, but the fact that it got so much publicity, you know, forced us to really look internally and and make a commitment to address the issue and not just look at it as a one-off type of a thing. It it was apparent to us even back then that there was just too much drug drug use going on. And it wasn't, you know, and it, what I said was true in that meeting. Um, you know, I never, and, it, you know, it, it stands to reason. No, nobody is going to do, you know, drugs around the boss. You know, I didn't see anybody doing anything illegal. And the illegal drugs really weren't the issue. It was the prescription drugs that were obvious to me even back then. And as we know now in 2019, prescription drugs are one of the biggest crises in America. But in 97, at this point, it was apparent to me that it really wasn't cocaine. It wasn't pot. It wasn't, you know, any other type of typical, you know, meth or heroin or anything like that. It was prescription drugs were, were the issue. And they were just way too easy to get. They were way too easy to abuse. There were guys going, you know, to Mexico on a regular basis and coming up with or coming back with, you know, small garbage bags filled with stuff that they were buying over the counter that would be otherwise a prescription only drug here in the States. So it was it was an issue and it was my attempt, our attempt as a as a company to address it. What did you think of the way it was handled? you know, on, on the WWF side of things, you know, the, the night after we lose Brian Pillman, um, Vince McMahon would go live with his wife, Melanie, who was, uh, at home and she had a camera crew there from the WWF and they're trying to have a conversation with her about, you know, what happened with Brian so quickly after learning of his passing. And a lot of the newsletters and a lot of fans were, not really keen on this decision. What did you think of that decision? I didn't think too much about it. You know, it's easy to cast judgment and, you know, have an opinion about what the, the right way or the wrong way to handle a situation. Uh, look, if, if Melanie, Melanie obviously chose to do it, it was her option to do it or not do it. And she, it, for whatever reason, I certainly can't, speak for her and didn't talk to her about it but it was clearly her decision to do it and since it was her decision it wasn't my position to kind of decide if it was right or wrong she was doing what was right for her in the moment another near life-threatening thing is happening in wcw in late september uh mark curtis um has been diagnosed with with stomach cancer and he undergoes four and a half hours of surgery on september 24th well, they remove, uh, part of his, his stomach, uh, most of his stomach and his spleen. And the hope is that this surgery has removed all the cancer and he'll be able to return to work at the end of the month. Of course, we know ultimately he would lose his battle to cancer and pass away far too young. And he's the second ref in as many years in WCW to get cancer as Randy Anderson was battling it the year before. 
but Mark Curtis, I still don't think about as maybe Brian Hildebrand. That's his real name. And I think he sort of gets forgotten in one of the greatest referee conversations ever because he passed away so young, but what a universally well-liked guy. I've never heard anybody say a bad word about Mark Curtis. No, and you never will. Um, Mark was a true professional. I mean, obviously he was very, very good at what he did as a referee, but he was, he was just one of those guys uh, that would show up and you know that you knew, I should say, that every time you put him in a ring, no matter how complex it was or who it was in the ring, uh, as a referee, he would have 100% control. And when I mean 100% control, I mean in the in the production of the event. I have 100% control, and, and he was one of those guys that just never dropped the ball. And just a, a sweet, sweet guy backstage. Again, one of those people that no matter how – tough things were or chaotic things were or how much drama was going on backstage at any given moment. Mark was just one of those guys that was always very even keel about everything. He never got rattled and he was, he was a great guy. We should talk about a couple of other things going on behind the scenes. Kevin Nash is going to have surgery on his knee and it's written that he's hopeful to be back by the end of November. Um, eventually Meltzer will have a follow-up where he says he's off crutches and uh, he hopes to be back in six to eight weeks. And around the same time, Scott Hall is out too, with an injury and he too has been on crutches. And of course that leads to lots of rumor and innuendo that some of the boys in the locker room are upset that whenever they're injured and not on TV, there's always some sort of a beat down injury angle, but there's not one here for Hall and Nash. How much of this is just sour grapes? And, and, and what do you remember about Hall and Nash both going down for the count around the same time? Well, they both went down for the count around the same time, but I don't remember any of the alleged, you know, issues with the boys backstage, you know, as written about in the dirt sheet. So I, I don't know if that was true or if that was just more fiction and, and, and filler uh, to, you know, add to somebody's 10,000 word count in a dirt sheet. I'm, I'm not sure. I don't, you know, I do recall them both being down. Injuries are constant um obviously kevin nash has had a long well-documented history of knee issues and knee operations and this was just one of many uh that occurred while he was in wcw and have been continuing to occur occur to this day so it it not unusual for kevin to have knee issues and and scott did have a back issue uh and and it, it flared up from time to time so um, like I said, in terms of the alleged, you know, discontent backstage as a result of the fact that they didn't get a beat down to explain their, their injuries, I kind of find that a little hard to believe, but whatever. I do want to talk about an interesting phenomenon that exists in wrestling because somewhere in the observer it's written among the people backstage at Nitro included Dan Spivey, who looks a hundred years older than he did as Waylon Mercy, Brian Blair. Jimmy Richland, who many folks know as Jimmy Del Rey, uh, Siva Afi, Lanny Poffo, Steve Kern, uh, Ed Leslie and baseball star Wade Boggs. How, how common was it in this Monday night war era for a bunch of old timers, for lack of a better word, guys who are no longer actively working in the business to just sort of show up backstage and hang out. Yeah, I mean, look, there there often is, especially at big events, um, there are often 
any number of wrestlers that come by either. And look, each one of them has a different reason. Some of them are just coming by to say hi to friends and, and, and hang out because the, the event is in their local market where they live, or in some cases like the MGM grand, because it was Las Vegas. Uh, there was a lot of other reasons <laughs> to show up to this event and, and it was a big event. And there was always a handful of people that were there hoping if they're seen and, and engage in a couple of different conversations that maybe there was a job there for them. Either you know, in the ring, behind the scenes, as an agent, whatever. So it 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 wasn't unusual, nor is it today. You know, you, same thing still happens today. You know, a lot of times it's the only time you get to see some of the guys you used to work with if, is is if you show up at a wrestling event. So it wasn't all that unusual. One of those names mentioned is Lanny Poffo, and, and Meltzer would write, Lanny Poffo was supposed to get a tryout this week, and there's lots of rumor and innuendo about Lanny and his contract status with WCW. A lot of people have long believed that he just had a buddy deal thanks to his brother, the macho man, Randy Savage, but it's written here that he was supposed to get a tryout. Was there ever, uh, an opportunity to take a stab at doing something with him on camera? Well, of course it was, you know, we, I actually put, uh, Lanny under contract at one point and, uh, look, we've talked about this before and I, I don't know that we want to go into the, the granular detail of it again, but you know, Randy was very loyal to his brother. Uh, he was very loyal to his whole family, uh, and they were loyal to each other. And Randy was willing to take a cut in pay and uh, make room available in a budget so that we could pay Lanny and put him under contract, which we did. Um, that was an accommodation we made for Randy, and it didn't cost WCW any income. In- incremental dollars so it was an easy thing for us to do Lanny didn't really fit at that time in terms of what we were doing in the ring but that wasn't the reason that we put him under contract another name that we didn't mention that showed up uh, to one of the tapings uh, happened in Orlando Rob Van Dam is here and uh, of course he's still under contract with ECW and tearing it up there but it does make you sort of scratch your head is Rob Van Dam here to visit with WCW to sort of gauge interest, just stir up the shit? What do you remember about uh, an under con- an under contract talent from another company popping by? Is, is that on your radar more than any of the other boys, or just business as usual? No, it was business as usual. And I, you know, I had known Rob. Rob and I had had a couple different conversations about possibly doing business together. And subsequently to 1997, we had uh, at least two or three conversations that I recall. Uh, one relatively serious one. Uh, so, you know, Rob was always kind of interested in w- what was going on, you know, in other organizations and looking to improve his situation. But there was nothing eminent. There were no serious conversations. There was nothing implied by either one of us that would suggest that, hey, if you make a move, you know, we'll, we'll have a great place for you here. He was under contract. We had a great roster. We weren't really looking to add people just for the sake of adding people or taking anybody away from anybody else. Just despite the urban narrative to the contrary, uh, that wasn't the case. Meltzer is also reporting on how big business is at this point. He would write world championship wrestling. Once again, broke its all time gate record this past week. But the amazing thing is it's for a show. That's still more than a month away. They put tickets on sale for their world war three show at palace and Auburn Hills announcing locally. It's uh, nothing except a 60 man, three ring battle Royal. The NWO and WCW exciting cruiserweights and high-flying Mexicans would appear. And they sent Larry Zabisco and Bobby Heenan to do local promo work. 
And by the end of the first day ticket sales on October 17th, they had already sold 7,268 tickets for 247 grand and change. And the all-time record house was set for the June 9th Nitro in Boston, which was 243 grand. And here they've already shattered it by $4,000 for a month that's still more than a month out, which is really remarkable. Uh, by the end of uh, business, three days later, they had sold 9,153 tickets to World War III, 306 grand and change, making it the first show in WCW history to ever break the $300,000 mark, which is just remarkable. Uh, of course, we're going to get there for Halloween Havoc as well, but not more than a month out like this. And one of the things that Meltzer would attribute this to is because ticket prices for WCW have been raised considerably for the live events, in particular, Nitro and pay-per-view dates. The house shows up a little bit, but not like the others. Is this a Zane Bresloff decision, or, or how does this get put together? And, and what do you attribute all of the success for, especially in a market like the pal- you know, the Palace of Auburn Hills isn't necessarily, historically, this great wrestling market? In World War Three, when we look back on it, we don't say, boy, those were the best pay-per-views. But, man, you guys had the high hand here. Well, it, it was a couple things. Number one, um, the idea to raise ticket prices were a part of it, clearly. It's not like we doubled the price or or tripled the price of tickets. There was, a, there was an increase, but it was probably relatively marginal, but it was a ticket increase, and that would have accounted for a portion of you know, the uptick in sales. But I think it's probably safer to say that, as you pointed out, we have the hot hand. You know, yeah, I think that's what happens. And it's funny, if you look at what's going on today, you know, I, I mean, AEW is, the brand is hot. Now, clearly, the, the, you know, the talent that's a part of AEW is hot as well. And they've done a great job making a name for themselves and creating a buzz with the independent wrestling scene and, you know, working the the social media, YouTube of it all. And, I mean, they've done a lot of things right. But I think it's fair to say that the AEW brand is just as hot, if not hotter. And this is not taking anything away from anybody that's a part of that roster. But I think because of the talent on the roster and the fact that AEW is – or at least represents, you know, the new kid on the block and, and you know, making as much noise as they've made internally and having as much success as they've had in some of their live events and pay-per-views. Um, the brand is hot. And I think when a brand is hot, WWE has experienced the same thing. Back in the late 90s, early 2000s, that brand was so hot, it almost didn't matter who was on the card. People weren't coming to see individual matchups necessarily. And obviously, the the, the individual matchups are important. It's a balancing act. I don't mean to suggest that if you're hot, you can put anything on the card and it'll work. But at the same time, when your brand is hot, when you when people view you like they did, they viewed WCW at the time is the coolest party in town. It didn't matter who was going to be at the party necessarily, or 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 what the buffet at the party was going to be like, or you know what what the free drink selection was going to be. It was a party that everybody wanted to be a part of and not miss. And conversely, when your brand is not hot, and when you're not recognized as that the cool place to be or the cool thing to share and experience with your friends. It Conversely, it doesn't matter who your main events are, and it doesn't matter what the matchups are, because it's not the reason, in my opinion, it's not the sole reason why people come. And I think one of the things that I've noticed over the years, um, and, and this was really 
really noticeable to me when I was in WCW prior to getting into management, even as an announcer working for Jim Ross. Um, Jim was, he was so effective and focused on promoting everything. I mean, you go back and listen to some of the WCW Pro shows or TBS shows where Jim was doing play-by-play. In every segment, he's promoting a pay-per-view. He's promoting the magazine. He's promoting promoting ticket sales. He's promoting, promoting, promoting. About halfway through the show, he's promoting what's going to be on next week's show. And I remember thinking at the time, when you have to work that hard to promote what you're doing next week, hoping somebody's going to come, while you're simultaneously promoting magazines and pay-per-views and hotlines and – you know, personal appearances and God knows what else, you know, is being promoted and shilled in a show. But when you're having to promote matches, hoping that it's going to drive a number, you're probably in not, not in the best shape. Meaning that if your brand is hot, people will show up. And, it, and I believe that all the way through the launch of Nitro and well into Nitro, if you go back and listen to those shows, we didn't spend a lot of time promoting what was going to be on next week. But we did spend a lot of time producing those shows in such a way that as a viewer, you felt like you had to tune in to find out what was going on. As, a bus, as opposed to promoting a main event match or even less, you know, co- coming up on the card next week, wrestler X versus wrestler Y and wrestler Z versus wrestler W. And I mean, you, you do all of that promotion, but if the audience isn't excited about your brand and aren't willing to tune in, aren't willing enough to tune in to find out what's going to happen this week, in my opinion, you haven't really successfully taken advantage of the fact that you're a live show. And I think it's a subtle difference between trying to create tune-in because of what they hear is being promoted versus creating tune-in because you're just so freaking hot and unpredictable. You got to tune in to see what's going to happen this week. I prefer the latter. I've seen it both ways, and I'm kind of looking at the way things are being done now. And I, I really believe that the emphasis, emphasis should be placed on creating such a hot show that's unpredictable. There's a lot of surprises. There's angles and issues that pop up that aren't previously promoted, especially in today's environment, because everybody feels like they have to promote the shit out of everything on social media, myself included, um, as it relates to this podcast. But I think when it comes to you know tune in television, I, I think there's a balancing act there. I think yeah, definitely you need to promote something if it's promotable, if it's compelling, if it feels like a really big fucking deal. But if it's just yep, we're going to do this next week, and it's kind of the same old thing that you always do, I think you just dull the urgency that live television creates for you. We should mention, you know, just how hot you are and give some examples, uh, your average attendance in October of 96, while it's still way up is 2,963 a year later, you're up 33% to 3,944. You're also way up at the gate, your average gate in October of 96, 36,685 bucks by October of 97 it's $79,281. That's a 116% increase. But ratings are still relatively steady. We talked recently about Halloween Havoc 96. Let's compare that to Halloween Havoc 97. It's the same arena. It's the same company. The NWO angle is still white hot. For Halloween Havoc 96, we've got 10,000 in attendance. That's 8,390 paid. Here for 97, we've got 12,457, which is a sellout, and 10,138 paid. 
What does that mean for the gate? Well, you go from 224,660 bucks to $297,508 and your pay-per-view revenue through the roof, 1.96 million for October of 96 versus 3.62 million for October of 97. So Halloween Havoc, man, it's uh, setting record after record here. No doubt. You know, we were on a financial role. We were on a creative role. We, 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 we had lightning in a bottle and it was evidenced in the numbers. And I think a lot of that success that you saw in October of 1997, for example, was probably the result of a lot of things that were happening earlier in, in 1997, first quarter, second quarter. But there was no doubt by any, any way you wanted to measure it. Uh, we, we were, we were on a roll. I think the only thing, you know, the one element of our business though, that we just couldn't really, um, capitalize on to the extent that we I wish we would have uh, was international we were still having a difficult time internationally uh, as strong as we were domestically because of, of Nitro and TNT and the growth in the pay-per-view business our international footprint from a distribution point of view meaning the number of um, cable companies and outlets that distributed our show in Europe was still really soft when compared to the WWF so that was a weak point in our model and we still really weren't up to speed anywhere nearly we should have been based on the success we were having uh, we were not nearly up to speed as to where we should have been on licensing and merchandising that would still take a little bit more time but all in all we were we were we were all pretty happy. And so was Turner broadcasting a couple little news and notes. I want to hit on with talent and then we'll get into the show. Uh, the Colorado kid, uh, recently walked out of the promotion after a match in Orlando at the tapings where Scott Hall was really rough on him. That's the report in the observer. What do you remember about Colorado kid walking out here? Don't remember that at all. Have no recollection of that. Another name that you uh, probably remember, and, and we have talked about a lot about here on the show from time to time is Paul Roma. Uh, he's going to attend house shows over the weekend, uh, trying to sell the company on doing an Italian cousins tag team with a guy he introduced as his cousin, Alex Roma. Of course, Roma is a stage name, but do you remember Paul Roma trying to pitch a deal to get back in the WCW here? I, I feel like for whatever reason, Paul Roma was sort of given a raw deal. I was a big fan of power and glory in the WWF. And I think he was probably saddled with, uh, a bad idea of being a four horseman and maybe he never really recovered. What do you remember about Roma trying to come in? Uh, very little. He wasn't there to see me. I had no conversations with Paul and, and nothing against Paul. I mean, he was, he was a good talent and I think you're right to a large degree coming in as a four horseman. Um, you know, it's like starring in a bad movie or, 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 or a good movie. If you're a bad actor, uh, it just didn't fit. It was bad casting, and he was stuck with it. But he may have been there to see Terry Taylor, or Kevin Sullivan, or any number of other people. But he wasn't there, you know, talking to me about coming back. I'm glad you mentioned Terry Taylor because he's going to make the news. It's written: Bobby Eaton and Joey Max were nearly fired, but it was overruled after a lot of politicking by Terry Taylor because the two had been so loyal to the company and are generally well liked. What do you remember about uh, Bobby Eaton and Joey Maggs maybe not being long for this world here in in the fall of 97? I don't remember the incident. I, I need a little bit more help with that one. But uh, let's see, Joey Maggs and Bobby Eaton, what could that have possibly been? It's not uh, cost-cutting necessarily. Is it just, you know, and I don't mean for this to sound the way it does, were they just too Southern? Too, they, you didn't like mullets? I mean, you've sort of mocked the Southern wrestling stuff before. You didn't really like the 
overweight free bird gimmick. I think you've called it before. Is that maybe what maybe gets your attention with Bobby Eaton and Joey Max? Eric has a bad day and fuck these guys. They don't fit what we are in 2017 or 1997. Eric, I never made decisions because I was having a bad day. I may have made bad decisions on a bad day, but it wasn't because I was having a bad day. Um, you know, I don't recall, you know, if there, if there was a point in time when we weren't using somebody and we were paying them a decent amount of money. And if I'd looked at them backstage and, and see what they had been doing on television, it didn't feel like it could really fit. Then, you know, it's quite possible we were willing to, to, uh, to make some cuts. I, I certainly can't remember back in 1997 what the situation was with no disrespect to Joey Maggs or Bobby Eaton, but I, I don't recall what the issue was, if there was any. What about Jeff Jarrett? He leaves on October 7th when his contract expires. Uh, this is his first WCW run. He only came in for a year. What'd you think of that year and who made the decision or was it mutual that, uh, that's a wrap. No, I think it was mutual. It really wasn't. Jeff really wasn't going anywhere. It, it didn't. You know, we had a lot of talent. I said this before on this pod, on this podcast. There was we had a very, very, very deep talent, and oftentimes, you know, the guys at the very lower end of the pay spectrum uh, can often survive a deep. Uh, talent roster. They're not the first places necessarily that you look to cut, but you, because you do need, you know, you do need those bodies that are interchangeable and guys that can step into a storyline for one week or two weeks at a time. And guys that can simply have great matches that maybe aren't going to get a big push. So, you, you know, you need to have a very well balanced roster. And sometimes, you know, the less expensive people on the roster are less expendable than some of the guys that are towards the middle or the upper end of the, of the cart that are obviously very expensive. And if you don't feel like you're getting your money's worth out of them, then, you know, they become vulnerable. Let's talk about Todd Pettengill. He's going to be dropped by the WWF. They're in cost cutting mode and he's making like 300 grand a year. So, uh, he's no longer in the world wrestling federation, but it makes the uh, newsletters that he was trying to make contact to get into WCW. Do you remember ever having a conversation with Todd? I never had a conversation with Todd Pettengill. This is the first that I heard that Todd Pettengill was trying to get into WCW. Um, that's, that's funny. The other thing that I found interesting, it makes the observer WCW in 1998 will be getting an $8 million increase in its budget slated for talent. Of course, this is because you guys are profitable and uh, you can afford it. But when you hear, Hey, we've got an extra 8 million we can spend. Is there anybody that, that gets you sort of salivating or wringing your hands thinking, man, I got to get that guy. No, no. And again, I know I've, you know, we've had these types of conversations before, not this one specifically, but I, I know it would seem to people that are listening to this podcast or people that perhaps have never been in the, the business and certainly people that don't know me, <clears throat> it would be easy to, to, to imagine that I'd be sitting at my desk, you know, kind of twiddling my thumbs, thinking about who I could cherry pick from somebody else's organization. But honest to God, that never happened. That's not the way my brain worked. The people that, you know, came to WCW, especially some of the higher price talent, whether it be Hulk Hogan, Randy Savage, Roddy Piper, you know, you name it, when Lex Luger wanted to come back, um, any of those, Gene Oakland, Bobby Heenan, these are all people that came to me. And I know it probably looked at the time like, oh, WCW is just, you know, 
snatching these guys right and left and paying more money than Vince McMahon. In some cases, that was true. But in most cases, you know, Randy Savage's case, Vince didn't want to see him in the ring anymore. Randy didn't want to retire from the ring. So that one had made that one easy. You know, you mentioned the cost-cutting initiatives that were going on in WWF at the time, which made it real easy for me to get guys like Gene Okerlund and Bobby Heenan because those guys had a great relationship with WWF. They weren't leaving because they had a bad relationship. They certainly weren't leaving because they weren't talented. They ended up leaving because the situation in WWF was beginning to get very, very uh, sketchy uh, for for them. And because of the cost cutting, they made a financial decision to come to WCW. But all of, you know, I know the narrative, you know, a lot of it was generated by WWF's revisionist history and during the, 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 the mid to late 90s when all this was really occurring. It was a big, bad billionaire Ted is, you know, stealing all of our talent. Well, that wasn't fucking true. But the narrative stuck. <laughs> they did a good job. They, meaning WWF, did a good job of, you know, being the underdog. And Vince McMahon did a you know, marvelous, you know, Academy Award winning performance of, you know, portraying himself as being beat, beat up by big, bad billionaire Ted and trying to destroy his family business. But nothing was further from the truth. We were growing our business. Theirs was faltering for a lot of reasons. Um, creatively, they were stagnant. I think they were still probably coming off a lot of a lot of the damage and damage control that had to be done as a result of the steroid trial. They had lost a lot of momentum during that period of time, and overall, the product was just kind of dated and and wasn't hot. And it wasn't until they kind of caught up to what we were doing and came out with the Attitude Era era and reignited their own business. Um, that things changed for them. But during this window of time from 96 to really the first part of 98, you know, as I've heard, you know, Bruce Pritchard could probably tell you more accurately than I can because I wasn't there and Bruce was. But, you know, I kept hearing that they were taking the water coolers out of Titan Towers because they couldn't afford to have them serviced anymore. In an environment like that, there's a lot of top talent that are looking for work or making sure if they're the next one that's going to get the axe that they've already got a you know place to land. That was really the case. It was never me sitting around going, wow, I got an $8 million budget increase. Who am I going to buy? You know, it's just wasn't it. One more thing before we get to the news and notes behind the pay-per-view. It's written, there seems to be a movement by Bischoff to totally neutralize any power or leverage Conan has regarding the Mexican talent. There was an order given to take all references of Conan out of the Lucha Libre documentary, despite him being probably the biggest drawing card in the past 10 years in that country. In addition, the Glacier La Parca match is an indication of, without the exception of Mysterio Jr., none of the Mexicans are getting any kind of push, and they are no longer doing six-man tags on pay-per-views and nitros. WCW is attempting to either get all the Mexican wrestlers to sign contracts, giving WCW exclusive worldwide rights, uh, with and the the concept there is, in other words, they'd no longer be allowed to wrestle in Mexico, which would take away a lot of the headline talent from the Promo Azteca promotion, which Conan is part owner of. Nor do Japanese tours, unless it was booked through WCW. In exchange for their worldwide rights, all the wrestlers who sign were to get raises, even though for the most part they would still earn far less than the comparable American wrestlers. Uh, I'm sure you have a response, but I know at times your relationship with Conan could be hit or miss to say the least. 
Well, it was true. It wasn't rumored innuendo. I was indeed trying to sign a, a lot of the uh, Lucha talent that was originally from Mexico to exclusive contracts. But there was a reason for that. We were paying them a fair amount of money uh, as it was in a non-exclusive manner. And number one, there were scheduling issues. There was a ton of communication issues. I think some of them manufactured by Conan at the time. Don't get me wrong. I love Conan. We're tight now. But there was a point in time when he and I just didn't see eye to eye. And Conan made a, a, a real effort to keep himself as uh, he leveraged his relationship with, with the Mexican talent, let's put it that way, to make sure he was whole on both sides of that equation. And it became apparent to me, and the, just the travel issues and the injury issues and so many of the other issues that came up as a result of not having exclusive talent. And, you know, again, I'm going to you know, fast forward to where we are in, in 2019. I think that's why looking back when TNA, for example, was trying to reduce all of their talent costs and was letting a lot of their talent work in other promotions. Now, again, this was domestically speaking in TNA's case. Um, number one, they're no longer your talent. They're no longer a part of your brand and you can see them almost anywhere. And I think it kind of diminishes the, the power of your brand. And more importantly than that, uh, you run the risk of, you know, your talent sustaining sustaining an injury in an independent event um, and not being available for your pay-per-view or for a longer-term storyline. So it was my intention. It wasn't rumored in innuendo. It was my intention to do two things, to uh, mitigate some of Conan's leverage, which I felt he was abusing at the time, and also to ensure that the investment that, that we were making in our talent, in this case from Mexico, uh, we were protecting our assets as best we could and preventing them from getting hurt. Or again, we had a lot of issues with scheduling. We had a lot of issues with getting people across the border. We had a lot of problems with the, the number of Mexicans that we were using at the time. And it was my attempt to try to solve that issue. Something else that you're trying to solve. And this is our last note before we get into the show. Uh, it's written that you had a meeting where you, uh, address the boys and you say that on the October 6th raw, they used the word ass 17 times and that WCW is going in the opposite direction of the WWF. And you announced that Sean Waltman could no longer do the Bronco buster spot and the NWO could no longer point to their crotch because he wants a clear, uh, different differential between the two products. And his explanation is that there are very few national advertisers who want to who want to touch pro wrestling to begin with. And allegedly it's written, he was afraid that the more lewd, harder edge of the WWF would erode the advertising base for both companies. Now you've talked a lot about, you know, uh, a meeting you had where WCW brass Turner sort of tried to rein you in a little bit here. How much of this is your real thought and belief and how much of this is just what you have to pair it to sort of toe the company line it was the company line it really was and this was the beginning of it it would progressively get worse into the summer of 1998 we've talked about that in the past but this was kind of like the the first time it raised its ugly head um i mean it was logical look i i didn't agree with it I, I, I was afraid that we were going to lose the edge that we had. And I've never been, look, I've never been a big fan of using expletives on, on a regular basis. Every once in a while, 
you know, if something were to slip out in the heat of emotion, you know, to me, it added to the believability of the moment or the fact that we were live TV and sometimes on live TV, anything can happen, you know, an expletive every now and then being one of them, you know, carefully used and utilized as a device. I never had a problem with it. Now, over-reliance on it when everybody's calling everybody an asshole or, you know, whatever the, whatever the expletive of du jour were or was at the time. Um, I think if you overdo it, it, it becomes boring and, and obvious, but that meeting wasn't because I felt I had to do what I had to do. It was because I felt I had to do what the company asked me to do. Well, what they asked you to do was go, uh, sell out Halloween havoc. And you did, we already ran through the numbers An incredible 10,138 fans paying nearly 300,000, 297,508. But the other interesting thing we didn't mention a moment ago, $102,340 in merchandise sales. Really, really remarkable. Uh, let's get to the action. You said you watched it this week for the first time in a long time. Up first, we've got Yuji Nagata and Ultimo Dragon. They're going to go nine minutes and 42 seconds. I love that you guys usually opened pay-per-views in this era uh, with international flair. And this is a great one, a new Japan style match, solid wrestling, some, uh, well-executed flying stuff, some stiff blows, lots of really hard kicks to the back. That's all basically the write-up from the observer, but seeing the Asai moonsault was such a, a cool thing to see in 97. There were very few hot spots on a big show that could compete with that. These days that that happens you know, every week, but what an innovation by Ultimo Dragon. I love the presentation. It is a little unique to see Sonny Ono not with Ultimo Dragon and instead in Ultimo's um, opponent's corner, three and three quarter stars, super fun match. What'd you think? I loved it. I absolutely love this match. And it, you know, when I was watching it today in preparation for this podcast, it occurred to me, and actually the first three matches on this card, you know, kind of reminded me of how what we did back in 97 and 98 <clears throat> with regard to the Japanese style and, and the lucha style that we were doing with, you know, with Eddie and, and, and Ray and so many of the luchadors and, and clearly in this match, this was a, this was a Japanese style match, which different, quite different than, than a luchador type match, but it was a great blend. You can keep in mind, Ultimo Drayden spent a lot of time working in Mexico, still does to this day, as a matter of fact, um, Eugene Nagata was, you know, one of the young guys in New Japan that Masa Saido was particularly excited about. And this match was, I don't call it a classic, but I think it was so far ahead of its time and really set the tone for what people would expect, not only in the late 90s, but well into 2000s and including to this day. This match was crisp. And what I liked about it, and, and I saw the same thing in the Rey Mysterio, uh, Eddie Guerrero match that we're going to talk about, and even in the Gato Jericho match that's coming up next, there was such a great balance of the high-flying kind of athletic, you know, high-risk type moves that are so commonplace today. In, in these matches, one of the things that I, I noted in all three of them was the balance and the pacing. 
so that it wasn't just nine minutes of, you know, flying back and forth and spot after spot after spot after spot until the match was over. There was a great balance of a lot of that athleticism and that high-flying aerial kind of technique that we, we have become so accustomed to. But then they'd bring it back down and you'd see some great mat work and some kind of classic, you know, brawling and and just stiff, tough, well-timed, well-placed action and that that's my takeaway on this match as well as the next couple is it just the balance of the athleticism and the ring work you know the groundwork in the ring and the psychology i think those three things were perfectly balanced and and this first match was a good example of that next up we've got chris jericho taking on gato and at this time i'll never forget thinking boy who the fuck is this guy well fast forward uh, he has won uh, Booker of the Year many, many, many times in a row. He has uh, helped bring New Japan back to prominence. He is the real-life behind-the-scenes Booker these days. So it's sort of interesting to see the current AEW champion wrestle the New Japan uh, Booker. Uh, this is a fun match to go revisit. They go seven minutes and 18 seconds. It's a sort of last-minute thrown-together match because Bill Goldberg was supposed to wrestle Ming. For whatever reason, that one winds up pulled off. We get this instead. This is obviously much different, but in my opinion, much better match, but there's a spot in here. That's one of the scariest things you'll ever see on a pay-per-view. And it is a fucking miracle that Chris Jericho is walking today, uh, because not only does he finish the match, but he's seemingly fine. He's trying for a spot where both guys are on the top rope. They're trying to do a flip backwards into like a, a top rope hurricane Rana, but Chris Jericho comes down directly on top of his head from the top rope with a lot of force and then gets up and keeps going. Somehow uh, three-star match. Of course, Jericho is going to get the win. He's going to get the win with the uh, lion tamer. Gato is going to submit. I didn't know the backstory of these guys coming into this, that they had apparently feuded in Japan and the war promotion, but you didn't need to know that for this to be a very entertaining match with one very scary spot right in the middle. Very scary indeed. And, you know, just goes to show you to Chris Jericho is one tough motherfucker. I mean, he really is, was then is now. And this match was, oh, Man, now the match coming up, in my opinion, we'll talk about in a few moments, is probably, I think, in my book, it's a classic. It is just textbook, textbook action. We'll talk about that after this. But this match is close to it. I mean, this match with Gato and Jericho, I really, really was entertained by it. And it was just thrown together. But these guys did have, you know, they feuded in Japan. I think they were tag team partners at one point in their career. And then they split. And I think Gato defeated Jericho in a New Japan tournament at some point. So, you know, they'd spent a lot of time in the ring together. They knew each other really well. But I thought the match was, I don't know, I don't want to say it was one of Chris's best matches ever, but. And if you go back and look at this match and you just look at how crisp and how how well-timed everything it was and how the guys were each positioned despite that bump, you know, in the middle that would have probably broken most people's necks, um, they were just they, – they made sure that they were each in the perfect spot in the ring for each other, which made the timing look that much better, made everything look much more crisp. And this was another match where – Despite the fact that Gato was from Japan, he was on the smaller side. Probably most people would have expected a cruiserweight style match, meaning more high flying, faster paced, more aerial kind of action. This match really had a lot more kind of a 70s ground and pound feel to it. This is a very, 
I don't want to say basic because it was such a great match. And it's the kind of match that I like, you know, I mean, this, this, you know, people, everybody likes something different, you know, and, and I understand that, but this style of match, this hard hitting, you know, great psychology. Yeah. There were some high risk moves in here, but for the most part, this match was great storytelling on the ground in the ring. And it, it really was, in my opinion, a great, great match. Well, let's get to the the real main event of this entire show. It's Rey Mysterio Jr. and Eddie Guerrero. And if you're going to watch one match this week, that's not on current TV, go out of your way to watch this one. You won't see any better. Uh, the wrestling observer reader poll, it was a runaway for the best match on the card. They had 147 votes. 140 of them were for this match. I don't know how this is possible. Meltzer only gave it four and three quarter stars. This is, uh, this to me is, is a five-star or better. If such a thing exists, what a story it's video game shit. They're doing in this it's 13 minutes and 51 seconds for the cruiserweight title. And Ray Mysterio gets the win. I, I don't know that we can put this over enough, uh, or, or talk intelligently enough to properly convey just how special this was, but there is a really remarkable segment midway through the match where they've got they're doing like a test of strength. So both hands are clenched and then they start to involve their feet and Mysterio goes to the top rope and then does a flip into a reverse DDT. And it is video game level stuff, one hot spot after another, but it, they told a story the entire way. It's not just flips and dives for the sake of flips and dives. And I'm not shitting on flips and dives. I'm a big fan of that too, but this was remarkably well done. I can't put it over enough. I've just got to say, go watch it. I'm sure you feel the same way. Damn, this is this was so incredible. I think this may have been, if this is not the best Eddie Guerrero, representative of some of Eddie Guerrero's finest work ever and Rey Mysterio's finest work ever, I don't know what is. I know they've had bigger matches. They, you know, they, they each had higher profile matches and, you know, were part of WrestleManias and all those other wonderful things. But in terms of the quality of the match, I, I really mean this. I challenge anybody to go to WWE Network, go to Halloween Havoc 1997, watch this match, and then please write, reach out to me on social media at eBischoff on Twitter and let me know if you think you've seen a better match than this match in the last 20 years not a bigger match a better match this this was this is that was a classic it is still a classic matchup that i think anybody that's that's in the industry today really they owe themselves the benefit of of spending 20 or 30 minutes and going back and watching this match because it has it all it has unbelievably incredible athletic presentation um the timing the christmas the psychology the characters i mean eddie guerrero had so much heat during this match and and even though he lost the match maintained his heat at the very end you know ray mysterio was over like a son of a bitch because of what they did in the ring and the way they told their stories and the way they managed their characters and presented those characters, it was just, it's a classic to this day. I, I, I don't know that I've seen a better match I mean, I of this, of this style. You know what I mean? How about this? So I'm going to say something here. We've never really talked about. I think this is the best match that happened in WCW while you were running the company. I, I don't disagree. 
I, I don't disagree. From a pr- presentation point of view, it wasn't the biggest match. It didn't draw the most money. Didn't change the course of the wrestling industry. But damn, it probably was, not probably, it was, I think, the best match that we've ever put on. And I think it's set, more importantly, I think it's set the tone for the next, when was this, 1997, 2007, 2007, for the next 25 years. This match is, this is a bar that I don't think anybody objectively could look at this match and say that they could point to another match in recent times that's as good as this all the way around. All the way around. Again, I want to be sure I'm clear here. Yes, there's been bigger matches. Yes, there's been matches with more emotion behind them. Yes, there's been bigger main event matches that have drawn more money. But please, please point me to a match that move for move, minute for minute, second for second, could come close to what, what you will see in this match. It's really incredible. And that's it's not because of me. It's That was Eddie Guerrero and Rey Mysterio. You know, I'm not patting myself on the back for this. This was all them. It was such a fantastic match. It's worth mentioning too, that this is happening, uh, in October of 97 on the other station, they're putting on the first hell in the cell with the undertaker and Shawn Michaels. And I mean, I, I don't know that you're going to get a better month of, of big time wrestling than, than we had there in October of 97 Meltzer would say. This was as good as a uh, modern pro wrestling can get with innovative moves, flawless execution and incredible psychology, drama, and very good announcing all wrapped into one package. The only thing that keeps me from listing this match as the match of the year is it wasn't long enough to be ranked ahead of some of the best 20 minute matches. Let's also talk about behind the scenes. And I know this is something you're probably not tickled to talk about. Um, not exactly sure what went down in the closing minutes to get the finish changed. Mysterio Jr. was animate and vocal about not losing his mask for the very reasons that were brought up in the video piece that was actually put together with the express idea of building up to him losing his mask. At one point, a few days before the match, Bischoff personally called Mysterio and told him if he didn't lose the match, it would be considered a breach of contract and he'd be fired and even threatened him with a lawsuit. And you can imagine, considering how popular Mysterio is with nearly everyone in the company, how well that went over. No doubt both sides agreed to a compromise at the end. Based on the sketchy details from a variety of sources, Guerrero was still going over one hour before the show went on the air. But in the last uh, next half hour to 45 minutes, Mysterio and Bischoff met, probably with Mysterio's agent Michael Scott as well. And they apparently came up with a face saving compromise. Apparently, Mysterio Jr. agreed to lose the match. But at that point, Bischoff agreed to change the finish. And the days preceding to the event, there's a lot of speculation that Bischoff would change the finish provided Mysterio agreed to lose the mask at some point in the near future, but I'm not sure if that's what ended up happening in the mating. So we know Mysterio is eventually going to lose, but what a great story they told here. I'm glad we got this match that we did. What do you remember about the creative possibly changing and Mysterio keeping the mask? Jesus Christ. I got vertigo listening to you read that stuff from Meltzer's sheet. I mean, there was so much. There were <laughs> there was so much stuff there that he wasn't sure of if it ever really happened. So I I, I, don't, I can't even really comment on it uh, directly. Suffice to say though, there was an issue. I definitely did want Ray uh, to to lose the mask. I felt at that time that if we were able to see and and I'm not justifying this. This was my thinking at the time. In retrospect, it was wrong. 
Uh, I recognize that. But at that time, my feeling was as successful as Ray was and as successful as he was becoming, I felt because he's such a good-looking guy, a great-looking character, and if we could see his face and, 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 and using his face be able to see the range of emotions that take place during the course of a match, he would become even more popular. He didn't agree with that, and and he had his reasons for, for not wanting to do it. But at the time, yes, I did want him to lose his match. Yes, it was an issue. It was a very well-contested one. It did get to the point where I don't know that I threatened to, to sue him, but I did threatened to breach his contract. I let him know that, you know, creative control was something that we had, not him. And this is something that as a company we wanted to do. Um, And it was an issue, but I didn't compromise letting him win the match in order to make a deal for him to, at some point in the future, take his mask off. If, if, if that word soup that you read to me from Meltzer's dirt sheet was, if I understood it correctly, that wasn't the case. Finish was the finish. It had nothing. It wasn't a contingency. It wasn't a something that was negotiated at the last minute, you know, hoping that I could finally get Ray's mask off. I know that makes for good copy, but it, it wasn't the case. I mean, the kind big- of conflate. Confl- I mean, it's it kind of conflating two different things, really. Yes, it was. There may have been a change in the finish. The finish may have been something that we were debating all day. Guess what? That happens everywhere to this day. To this day. Um, and I'm not suggesting that it, there wasn't a lot of back and forth back in 1997 on, on the finish issue, but it wasn't necessarily connected to what Ray would or wouldn't do with regard to the mask in the future. I guess the thing that stuck out the most to me is that Michael Scott from Dunder Mifflin was, um, uh, Ray Mysterio's agent. I don't remember him, honestly. Yeah. I wonder what Jim and Pam were thinking. Uh, let's also talk about the next match on the card here, which I can't believe had the unfortunate, uh, positioning to follow an all-time classic is Alex Wright and Steve McMichael. And, uh, the idea here is Deborah McMichael may have to leave WCW. If Steve McMichael wins, Deborah's out and he gets his credit cards and his Rolex back. And if Alex Wright wins, well, Deborah can stay. Unfortunately, Alex Wright won. Uh, Bill Goldberg does a run in and, and hits his jackhammer while Deborah has the uh, referee distracted. And there you go. This it's maybe one of the ugliest things you've ever seen. And, and afterwards, Deborah's going to give Goldberg Steve's 85 Super Bowl ring negative star and a half. What'd you think of this one? Oh, you're going to shit yourself, but I thought it was a great match. Oh God. <laughs> I knew you were going to have a seizure over that. Now, now look, you set it up right. It had the misfortune of having to follow the Rey Mysterio Eddie Guerrero match. There's probably nothing on the rest of the card that we could have put on to follow the Eddie Guerrero Rey Mysterio match. But if you just look at this match in context, Now, don't compare it to anything else on the card. Just go back and watch this match for what it was. I'm going to put this in context. This this was a mid-card match. This wasn't one of our main eventers. This was Steve McMichael, who had not been in the wrestling business for 10 or 15 years. This was a guy who was a Super Bowl champion. He was an outstanding NFL player. 
who broke into the business on a part-time basis and ended up, if you go back and watch that match, tell me what he did wrong. Tell me, give me an example of a move. Now, there was one botch spot in there, and it was actually Alex Wright who was trying to, to uh, pick up and tombstone pile drive uh, Steve McMichael, and he just couldn't get him. And that that was partially McMichael's fault for being tough to get up. But, you know, I, I, in my opinion, Alex Wright should have never tried that move to begin with. McMichael was just too big. But take that botch spot out uh, and tell me what was wrong with this match. There was psychology. The moves, there were no botched moves. The timing was damn good, again, for what it was. Certainly not Eddie Guerrero or Rey Mysterio or Chris Jericho or Gato. But it was, it. I thought, on a scale of 1 to 10, for the context, within the context of, of what this match was supposed to do and who was in this match, I, I thought it was a solid 7. I'm going to punch you in the dick next time I see you. Because you know I'm right. No, this is terrible. <laughs> God, that's horrific. The finish of this thing is no, the finish. The finish blows. I'm sorry, (laughs) but the finish blows. But the match itself did not. the The body of the match leading up to the finish, and this was another screwy WCW finish. It was it was our Achilles heel. Uh, It always had been before I got into the business, and it was while I was running. WCW. I didn't have a good feel for finishes and clearly neither did anybody that was working for me because our finishes were, were consistently weak. Sometimes they were better than others, but generally they were weak to just average in terms of their quality and the impact that they had on the story. This particular finish blew, but the match itself, the body of the match I thought was far better than I expected to see. Let's talk about something that you were, um, discussing a lot behind the scenes allegedly and it got all the newsletters fired up next up it's Jacqueline and disco inferno on pay-per-view and allegedly there was maybe a hiccup with getting it cleared with the nevada state athletic commission yes a lot of athletic commissions are still involved in wrestling i don't know why uh, but apparently the commission came around and agreed to certain stipulations which would make it not a traditional match to say the least, but supposedly you've tried to put this together for a little while. And I have a theory here. You and I've never really discussed this, but the theory is you tried to put the match together and disco protested maybe a little too much. And you pushed back just because he winds up getting sent home. He's no longer with the company. And part of the condition of him coming back was. He's going to have to put Jackie over and it's going to have to happen at pay-per-view. How in the world do we get here? What can you tell us about the backstory? Uh, true. It was true. I wanted the match. I, I, I thought it was a great way to get Jackie over again. If you could go back and listen to the 150 odd podcasts or whatever it is, hundred odd podcasts that we've done together. Um, I'll go back to what I've said consistently over the last 20 years or 25 years. My, my methodology for getting Nitro as hot as it was in 1997 started with do something different. Don't try to be better than the WWF. Try to be different than the WWF as often as possible. WWF being our only competition at the time. I wasn't trying to go after their audience. I was trying to create my own. I was trying to do as many things as differently as possible and still maintain 
our core audience. Sometimes I was right on the mark, as evidenced by Yuji Nagata and, and Ultimo Dragon and Gato and Jericho and Rey Mysterio and Eddie Guerrero, and sometimes I was off the mark, arguably Alex Wright and, and Steve McMichael on a pay-per-view. But it my attempt to try to do things different was consistent across the board. Like I said, sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. I wanted Jackie to wrestle disco. I thought it made sense. It wasn't like the most important thing in my life until disco drew a line in the sand and said, no, I don't want to do it. At that point, it became really, really fucking important to me. Not because the match itself was going to matter all of that much in the, in the big picture and in the long, in the long run. But the fact that a talent would say, no, I'm not going to do that. Um, that didn't work. Especially the way the way he did it, and you know, this is you know, Disco was not a guy that was, you know, drawing houses and and selling out pay per views and and responsible for a lot of the success we were having at the time. You know, he was a good, solid mid roster talent, and to have a good, solid mid roster talent say no, uh, I won't do that. That didn't work for me, brother. So yeah, it, it ended up being a, a pissing contest. Yes, indeed. It is slobber knocker time every Thursday. I'm going to JR Jim Ross. And I hope you join the pod father Conrad Thompson and I every Thursday for grilling JR. If you're not listening, I'll find your ass. The match is, uh, well, not good, but it happened. Um, the story here, I guess is, uh, disco can't hit her. So he just runs a lot and there's a, an incredible amount of stalling. It is not a good, good match at all. Uh, but ultimately, you know, she wins with a roll up and, and it's mercifully over nine minutes and 39 seconds. It gets a quarter star. So it got a better review in the observer than Alex Wright and Steve McMichael did next up. We've got Kurt Henning taking on Ric Flair and Kurt's going to get the win by DQ. As you may recall a couple of months prior and so I guess actually the prior month, uh, Kurt would slam the cage door on Ric Flair's head. And this is his rematch. Allegedly they were trying to build to the blow off at Starcade 97. Of course we know, uh, there's going to be some, some challenges along the way with some injuries starring three quarters though, the match is okay. But considering that, uh, he never actually got to, uh, slam the U S belt into, uh, into his face. I mean, I guess he, he did stomp it in there, but it's not the big to me, it's not as big as slamming the head in the cage door, but it does continue the story. It's not a blow off. It's just another chapter. I felt like this one was just sort of, eh, for me. What'd you think? I agreed with you. It, uh, uh, with all due respect to Kurt Henning, who is a pretty good friend of mine, Kurt wasn't at the top of his game at this point. Uh, he, he had, he had a good match. But for those who remember some of Kurt's best matches, in comparison, this was just okay. Uh, it was an okay performance on, on Kurt's part. Rick, Rick did a good job. Rick was Rick. You know, Rick, I think, did the best he could under the circumstances. But it just didn't have the energy. It didn't have the – it just didn't have the pop that I would have expected if you just – you know, sent me this this format on paper and said, okay, we're going to go over these matches, and I would have seen, you know, Kurt Hennig and Ric Flair. My expectations would have been much higher 
than this match delivered. And I, again, I think it was a solid match. You know, one of the notes that I made myself watching it was again, it, it was the style of match for the most part that I really enjoy. Um, meaning it, it, it was a match that would have probably held up well in the seventies. It would have held up well in the eighties, had the energy and the athleticism been up a notch or two, it would have held up well in the nineties. It was that classic, kind of traditional NWA, AWA type of match that I, I grew up, you know, at least in AWA, really enjoying. Uh, but again, it just didn't have the, just didn't have the pop, the, the, the sharpness to it uh, and the psychology to it that I typically would expect out of a Kurt Hennig Ric Flair match. Another one that looks really good on paper, again, not good. Lex Luger and Scott Hall. Larry Zabisco is the special guest referee. Lex is going to get the win in 13 minutes and two seconds, probably too long. It feels like the match is just sort of there. It's serving more as a backdrop to furthering the Scott Hall, Larry Zabisco issue. Uh, six is going to be in Scott Hall's corner. Uh, it's okay. I suppose three quarters of a star, but I was just sort of ready for something to happen in this match. And it never felt like it really did. No, I, I think you're right. You know, the way you, your observation where uh, that it was just a match that was to, designed to continue the Scott Hall, Larry Zabisco storyline. That's exactly what it was. And that's exactly what it accomplished. Now, I, I kind of disagree with you. And again, this is very personal, you know, because of my relationship and experience with Larry Zabisco. I loved his work as a referee. I think Larry Zabisco made, I think it, Larry, Larry Zabisco told the story in this match. I think there was more psychology taking place in this match from Larry Zabisco than there was anybody else. He really glued this match together from a storyline perspective. And you could see it from the very beginning. He told a great story all the way through, including, you know, the restart. The thing that bummed me out about the restart was, you know, the clip that they used that showed X-Pac um, nailing Luger from behind with a kick. The kick looked so looked like it missed by a mile. I wish we would have picked a different replay or a different angle for that replay. But Larry just made that thing look so believable that I kind of forgot that it was just a so-so match. Year here in 1997, and this is going to be billed as a Las Vegas sudden death match which means it would only end with a 10 count on the map. This is the era where DDP starts coming to the ring with his ribs taped up every single night. I'm sure some of that feels like a gimmick, but Randy Savage was really leaning into those elbow drops off the top rope. So I'm sure he had some busted ribs along the way. They're going to brawl into the Halloween havoc set and they're going to, you know, mess with the, the caskets and the tombstones and Good stuff. I really enjoyed this. I don't know why I've always enjoyed this one, uh, this feud as much as I have, but I did. Uh, there's a fake sting that was said to be Hulk Hogan who runs down to the ring and hits Paige with a baseball bat. Paige eventually gets counted out of the ring. So Savage wins. And then he attacked the referee, Nick Patrick and Meltzer would say the match was booked similar to an ECW style, but the wrestling was at a much higher level than ECW matches three quarters or three, three and a quarter stars. 18 minutes again, a pretty long match, but I didn't mind it with this one because I was so invested in these two guys character and the story, especially with them involving the wives. It was good stuff. I loved it. I think it's as good as it gets for these two guys in this feud. 
You know, I agree with you 100. percent And I, what I really liked, and I know I always, you know, I shit on WCW finishes on a pretty regular basis, um, but I love this finish, and I loved it because a it was different, and b it was believable. When you got Paige kind of sprawled out over a ring apron and somebody comes in and runs in and blasts you across the rib cage with a baseball bat, if for any reason Paige would have got up and continued that match or, God forbid, made a comeback at some point or even attempted a comeback, I would have probably gagged on it. But that it, it wasn't a dramatic finish. It wasn't a dramatic beat. It wasn't some you know athletically complex, oh, my God moment. But it it was it was freaking believable, in in a very almost anticlimactic kind of way, because he was counted out. But I didn't care because it was so real and it felt so real. So I I, I love the match for all of the reasons you did. These guys both came to the ring with a ton of intensity and desire to have the best match on the card. It they did every time they got into the ring. They were completely committed. They enjoyed working together, and whenever whenever you have two people that really really enjoy working together, probably like Ray and Eddie, you know, earlier in the night, or, or Jericho and Gato earlier in the night, or Yuji and and Ultimo Dragon earlier in the night. When you've got people that have worked together in the past and really enjoy working together, odds are you're going to get something pretty good. And in this case, I think we got something that was way better than pretty good. Well, and if you're looking for something way better than pretty good, we, we got to tell you about a friend we love talking about. It's our friend, Steven Singer. And I'll tell you the competition. They don't love him like we do. They must really hate this guy. It just makes the experience of buying a diamond better and better. And he makes it fun. Steven is the very first to offer each and every customer the perfect price. That's right. Have you ever wondered if you're getting the perfect price? Are you uncomfortable negotiating? Well, head to Steven Singer Jewelers and you're guaranteed to get the perfect price. You'll never pay more than the guy sitting next to you. Here's a little insider tip. You may already know most jewelers mark their merchandise way up just to mark it down and make you feel like you're getting a deal. The guy next to you may be paying less. Do you want the most important purchase of your life to be based on your negotiating skills? Never the case at Steven Singer. Because at Steven Singer Jewelers, you're guaranteed to get the perfect price all day, every day, 365 days a year. Let me put that in layman's term. There's no promo code. There's no special. There's no sale. That's why we trust Steven Singer. He makes the experience of buying a diamond so easy. So don't take our word for it. Check out Steven Singer Jewelers at the other corner of 8th and Walnut in Philly or online at IHateStevenSinger.com. That's IHateStevenSinger.com. One more time. I hate Steven singer.com Steven singer jewelers, one place, one price. And Steven singer jewelers is not just like a brand name. Steven singer's a real guy. And he listens to this podcast, right? Eric? He does indeed. Hell of a guy, great product, great service. And if you're in the market for jewelry, and it's one of the things that people don't realize, you know, the two products, I think consumer products that tend to be marked up the most are furniture and jewelry. And Steven Singer has really come along and done some great things and made great jewelry very affordable and doesn't gouge you in the process. So great, great service, great products, and you can be a hero. Some of the stuff that uh, Steven Singer has at IHateStevenSinger.com is unique, one-of-the-kind type stuff that you can't find anywhere else. So can't put it over enough. And by the way, it's filled with truth and transparency. Like 
I hate stevensinger.com doesn't hire models. The people who are showing you the jewelry on the website, they actually work there. So when you place an order or you visit their store, or you give them a call. It's actually those people. They're legit, man. See what we, Eric and I already know. I hate stevensinger.com is the way to go. Let's get to our main event. I can't believe we're doing this. This was nicknamed by the competition age in the cage. It's Roddy Piper and Hulk Hogan. It's a silly gimmick looking cage. This is stark contrast to the hell in a cell on the other channel with Shawn Michaels and the undertaker. It's a non-title match. So you know what that means? Even before the bell rings, Roddy Piper is going to win 13 minutes and 37 seconds. The crowd is, uh, they're ready because there's so much hype. And as Bruce Pritchard says, and then the bell rang, uh, Meltzer writes, this was a slow motion battle of should be extinct dinosaurs who can come across great on nitro during interviews. But when they're put in the ring with all the hype, the lack of heat showed they are having a harder time fooling the public that they can still wrestle another cage match where tons of guys get in both guys get out a million stings come out all to no reaction. Hogan juiced at one point, he's two leg drops and somehow Randy Anderson got into the cage. And counted the pin, but Piper kicked out. Anderson stayed in there for the finish. A savage supposedly hit Hogan with a flying leap and Piper used the sleeper for the win. Then came the post-match angle with the fan, really bad stuff. It got a dud rating. It's been debated for a long time. Was this fan jumping in an angle? Was it a plant? Was it supposed to happen? You guys are trying to shoot around it, but it looks like Hogan's throwing working punches, but. Savage looks like he's really going after him. It's just fucking weird. Um, <laughs> I, I, I feel like, I feel like Piper and Hogan are two old school guys. And I know that a lot of old school wrestlers like Arn Anderson, who I have a show with tomorrow here on Westwood one, uh, at the yarnshow.com. He would say, man, we didn't, we didn't do all that plan it all out ahead of time. Shit. We got out there and we were professionals. We called it the ring and. That is sort of the old school way of doing things. But when you see these guys here, I feel like they're just like, well, we'll just call it in the ring and then they get out there and they don't know what to do. So they just wind up doing a bunch of random punching. It was just not a great match. Meltzer gave it a dud rating. I'm sure you being a Hogan apologist, you fucking loved it. Um, no, I actually, I didn't love it. Not for the same reasons you may not have, or anybody else who wrote about it may not have loved it. Um, look, Hogan and Piper at this stage of their careers were only capable, you know, you had to work around a lot of their limitations. You know, Hulk Hogan was never, you know, a Chris Benoit or Eddie Guerrero or Chris Jericho, or, you know, or a, a technician. He was not a Shawn Michaels. Um, he was not a Bret Hart. Um, he was Hulk Hogan and he was a bigger character than any of them. Uh, Steve Austin wasn't necessarily the greatest worker. Um, in, in terms of technical skills and abilities, but he's in a fucking awesome character. Um, he had more technical skills, you know, than, than Hogan did because of Hogan's size and injuries and limitations, especially at this stage of, of Hulk's career. But, um, the match, you know, the characters were so strong, you know, go back and watch a match, you know, watch how the audience reacted towards the end. You tell me if there was heat or not. I saw it. I felt it. It's there, you know, for my eyes, Maybe I'm looking at it differently than everybody else did. That doesn't mean I thought it was a great match. I've just got to, you know, 
a cage match. First of all, the cage was fucking rinky dink looking. It, I don't, I don't know where it came from. I, I, it just, it looked horrendous. My thought, you know, watching it back this morning or this afternoon, uh, was that the fact that Hulk and or Roddy had the balls to crawl up that rickety piece of shit shocked me i wouldn't have crawled up to the top of that i mean that thing was wobbling all over the place i, I would have been wondering if, they, if that thing was going to come apart and neither one of these two guys were you know gymnasts at this point in their careers not that hulk ever was or roddy for that matter um but they did and they used it but the fact that you know you had all the different stings and referees getting in and out and i mean that just defies the logic and the psychology and the the meaning of having a cage match just it throws it away and i've never been a big fan of that yeah this was not great uh address the fan thing it's often been debated and discussed was it a plant was it uh somebody jumping in and you guys trying to shoot around it it just came off weird on tv no it came off weird because it was a shoot but hulk and randy both decided to take advantage of it and they did um randy was grinding the fuck out of the guy you can go back and watch it if you want to um randy had a handful of hair and was you know grinding his head into the mat and i mean throw he had all of his weight on his neck and he was doing everything he could to keep him down and i think once he got control of him hogan decided to take advantage of it hogan's not a you know you're not gonna beat anybody up he would let other people do that but if he could take advantage of that situation and get a couple shots that he did and that's probably one of the reasons why it looks so awkward because if you go back and watch even doug dillinger who's head of security and some of the other guys that worked with doug who were all by the way police officers in charlotte at the time they weren't sure what to do you know because they knew that it was a, 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 a fan getting into the ring that wasn't supposed to, but at the same time it was like, well, wait a minute, they're making it part of the show. <laughs> so it, it was really awkward. And, you know, our director didn't quite Craig Leathers wasn't sure whether he should shoot away from it or not. But once they started taking advantage of it and making it look good, um, it is what it is. Well, it is what, what it is. It was, was what it was. I should have said. Well, it is what it is. Could have been a new shirt over to ericbischoff.com. Lord knows we've had a lot of fun creating some other new shirts here lately. I can't believe that you've been such a good sport about all the do's and notes in the last month or so, but we've got a Bischoff moving service shirt. Now you can find me in catering shirt. Now an 83 days shirt. Now this is fun stuff. It's available at ericbischoff.com. Uh, what's the feedback you've gotten about some of these fun shirts that we've been rolling out lately? Yeah, it's been very positive, and let's be really honest and transparent about this. This was your idea. It wasn't my idea. I went along with it um, and, and got a little bit of a chuckle out of it. And, you know, the way you presented it to me, I think, made it easy for me to go, hell yeah. People are going to come up with bullshit rather than argue about it. Let's just make money off of it. So it's been very positive. It's been a lot of fun. You know, the 83 day shirt is, is probably one of my favorites, but you know, you can find me in catering is close second. So it's, it's, it's pretty funny. Check it out. Ericbischoff.com. You'll be glad you did. We had lots of questions where people wanted to know, uh, Hey, are, are you guys still selling the, uh, bird face punked shirt a long time ago, uh, on the, here on the show, you referred to Vince McMahon as someone who looked like a bird faced punk. Yes. That shirt is still available. It was, it never went away. Uh, but context is king. Mabel was the third man. No brag, just fact. Even the famous fired shirt, I don't debate the dead. Uh, Bischoff, too perfect to be real. To be the man, you must be tan. 
controversy creates cash. You got to check it out. Oh, by the way, it's daytime. That's right. It's daytime. Go check it out right now at uh, ericbischoff.com. And we hope that you will follow us on social media at 83 weeks. You can get all the scoops about what's coming your way with the new shows and ask questions. And if you've got a question about next week's show, the easiest way to get it on the air is to follow us on Twitter at 83 weeks until next week. He is Eric Bischoff. I am at, Hey, Hey, it's Conrad on Twitter and we are out of time. We'll see you next week right here on 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round together. It's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? Can you pay me more? Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.